Shalom, Mishpocha. Shalom, family. Mishpocha is a Hebrew word. means family. And we're the Mishpocha, the family with the Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people. Where the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, it's finally come down to form one new man. Getting ready, Mishpocha, to blow the grandest shofar on the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone everywhere to hear the good news. We want everyone everywhere to be red hot for the Messiah. Now, if you're like me, you love studying Bible prophecy. From a supernatural perspective, it, it, it is second to nothing because before things occur, God says they're going to occur. And in the same book that he states these things will occur, he says that if a prophet comes in my name and has a prophecy and it doesn't come to pass, there's one thing you know for sure. I did not send him. I require 100% accuracy. Why does God require 100% accuracy? Because he's seen the events before they happen, because he's in a realm called eternity where there's no time. That's why Bible prophecy is so wonderful. But God has a timing for us to understand certain aspects of end-time Bible prophecy. And I get so excited when I find someone that has got a new understanding of these prophecies that, from our perspective, look like they're about ready to happen, and that is Dave Brennan. Uh, Dave, uh, I find it really interesting. You had a Catholic background. Uh, You uh, didn't understand the scriptures too well, but in around 1992, you had a terrifying dream. Tell me about that. I did. And um, just to give a little background, uh, I was going through some marital issues at the time, and uh, I was in an apartment in Florida. And my family was in New Orleans. We did business in Florida, and I was by myself. And there was a Bible on the shelf. And uh, I tried to read it. I had never tried to read it before. It had been given to me by somebody going door to door, and I just took it and put it on the shelf and forgot about it. I certainly wasn't saved, and um, I tried reading it and said it made no sense to me. It was odd. Uh, The sentences, the way they were designed, didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And I had heard that if you read the Bible, you'd get some comfort, and I needed comfort right then, and that was the whole purpose for, for doing it. And I made the effort, and it just didn't work out. So I went to bed that night. And in the middle of the night, I had a dream the like of which I had never before had in my life, the vividness of it. It was just different. Uh, was it, uh, were, were you just observing something, or were you actually in the dream? Well, I was observing, and what I observed was terrifying. It was red, and then it turned toward me, and it was a huge dragon, just the head. And and very in the typical sense that you see these dragons in uh, uh, biblical sketches, which I was not familiar with at that time, and it turned and began coming after me. And... Uh, I awoke at that moment, and I was in a puddle of perspiration, 
which had never before happened. My heart was racing so fast that I, I began to become concerned about uh, my, my physical well-being. And eventually, as I sat up in bed, and, and I'm all wet from perspiration, um, I began to calm down, and I began to think about it. And it, it really concerned me. And I had heard um, people say these words, and then I decided, you know, I'm going to say these words. And uh, I looked up uh, in the bedroom in the dark of the night, and I said, uh, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. And um, eventually, you know, I went, tried going back to sleep, and eventually I fell asleep. Uh, the next morning when I woke up, uh, the, the dream was very fresh, and I remember it like it was yesterday, even right now. And um, uh, when I picked up the Bible that morning, I gave it another shot, and it was completely alive, like I have never read anything before in my life. And it, the the meaning just jumped out at me, and I couldn't put it down. And from that point forward, I just began devouring uh, the Bible. And uh, before that, I had an interest actually in Bible prophecy because a friend and I used to listen to tapes on it. But I was not saved. And I can understand people having an interest in supernatural events, which certainly prophecy is, but not being saved yet. And and I tell you what, the, the transformation when I would read the Bible was absolutely mind-blowing. It sounds to me like you're in your DNA was to understand a prophetic understanding. You had an interest. What about Israel, even before you knew the, the Lord? Uh, did you have any um, interest in Israel? I did. Uh, I, I liked Israel from a political standpoint. I, I received my degree in college in political science. And um, in 1984, I was a campaign manager in the Reagan-Bush re-election effort uh, in Louisiana and met the president. I've always had an interest in in uh, politics, but from a political standpoint, I was a big fan of Israel. Um, when a friend of mine began getting these tapes on Bible prophecy, I started listening to them with him. It absolutely fascinated me that how can this be? And uh, I guess that also probably softened up my heart for the moment a couple years later, you know, when I had that experience. Well, I have no doubt uh, you have been anointed to reveal an end-time missing understanding of prophecy. Now, one of the things that God put in your hands, and I've never heard of this, and you have an, uh, information about an ancient Egyptian scroll uh, that actually sounds very much like the judgments that came on Egypt in the Exodus. It is, and it's just amazing. I came across this. It's referred to um, as Leiden 344. That's the catalog entry in the Museum of Antiquities in the Netherlands. Well, what does that mean? It's an ancient Egyptian papyrus, and it was written about 3,500 years ago. The, the short name for it is the Papyrus Ipiwer. Ipiwer was a fellow that lived 3,500 years ago, and he was obviously 
a character that um, was an advisor to Pharaoh, just like we have today. The president has an array of uh, counselors and advisors. Well, this fellow, Ipiwer, uh, I-P-U-W-E-R, uh, was an advisor. And something happened, though, uh, for him to write uh, the papyrus that we're talking about. Something very big happened in Egypt, and in fact, he writes in such a manner as to be um, an admonition against Pharaoh, which one did not do back then, but he apparently did. We don't know if he got away with it, but he did it because something really big seemed to happen. Uh, The papyrus was found in 1822 uh, around the pyramids, and what it relates Sid, is just specific details recorded from the Egyptian perspective of events that transpired long ago in Egypt that are eerily similar to what happened uh, and is recorded in the book of Exodus. Uh, this, the, in other words, it's the same judgments you're reading about. So he, he was uh, just recording what occurred. Uh, what did this mean to you? Well, it was so fascinating. I, I really delved into it, and uh, it, it showed me, actually, <clears throat> excuse me, something I personally didn't need to see, but I can understand uh, the need on the part of many others that it just reconfirms that uh, the book that we call Exodus, even as old as it is, uh, is actually confirmed from a secular perspective. For example, we know in Exodus that uh, the River waters were turned to blood. Well, some people tried to say, well, that was just uh, figuratively speaking. But let me tell you, in this papyrus, he talks about um, blood is everywhere. The river is blood, he talks about. He talks about men, this is his quote, this is from 3,500 years ago on the papyrus. Men shrink from tasting human beings and thirst after water. In other words, the blood is in the water, and they can't drink the water because there's blood in it, exactly what uh, Exodus tells us happened. And and what I find fascinating is you then piggyback to today, and you see parallels of when Egypt went against Israel and when the U.S. or nations of the world go against Israel. Yes. And, And, you know, We look at the book of Exodus and we think in terms of, well, the Pharaoh um, was trying to prevent the Jews from leaving, and um, therefore these events, these very unusual events unfolded. But there's another angle to that perspective. You know, it was the land that the Lord was sending the Jews to possess. So essentially, Pharaoh was preventing the Jews from possessing the land, and the Lord took very strenuous actions. And uh, we see today, and uh, I know we've talked about uh, other uh, individuals who've been on your show that have talked about these strange coincidences, and I use that term now kind of tongue-in-cheek, of historically significant disasters unfolding, uh, the like of which would include 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina, with timing to the day, usually, that an effort begins against the promised land. Uh, Well, you see, I see the countdown 
and you do too, of when someone orchestrates dividing up the land of Israel, that's what releases all of these judgments again. Yes, and we're seeing that unfold. Whoops, we're out of time, but I want to get his two books and one CD. It's called The Israel Omen and the Israel Omen 2 into your hands, because when you see his revelation from Zechariah, it's what's happening today. Also included is a bookmark in which I've personalized Psalm 91. I want you to read this out loud every day. My friends in Israel that are Jewish believers in the Messiah, their lives are being preserved because no weapon formed against them can prosper. I want the same for you. Available for a gift of $35. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. Tell me one in this ancient scroll, one of the judgments it talked about for Pharaoh trying to stop the Jewish people from going to Israel. You know, in El Arish, there's, uh, there's a shrine, and the shrine has on it hieroglyphics that were deciphered, and it talks about a time long ago where Pharaoh had uh, gone before the sea, the Red Sea, uh, to the same place. Uh, the name is the same as what in the book of Exodus tells us is the town where the Jews fleeing Egypt had, had first camped before crossing the Red Sea. And then as it goes on, it talks about how Pharaoh ended up in a whirlpool of water uh, and lost. He was lost. He was killed in a whirlpool of water uh, just outside of that particular uh, city that the Bible says is the place that the Jews uh, launched into uh, the Red Sea. So it's just absolutely fascinating from a secular perspective, you know, that it was recorded exactly what uh, the book of Exodus is telling us. Now, just out of curiosity, uh, you, and we'll, we'll talk hopefully a little later on in the week about what's coming up, which is uh, a replay of what happened in the Exodus as countries try to divide the land of Israel. Uh, but before that, how in the world did you get this revelation you have in your two books on Zechariah and the four horns and the four carpenters? Uh, how did that evolve? Well, I tell you, as I was writing, um, I, I began looking at various prophecies that relate to uh, Israel's possession of the land. And um, this particular prophecy talks about uh, how four horns will eventually come against the land. Well, we know that horns are actually political powers. And these horns uh, will go after to scatter the land, but a funny thing will happen well, not so funny for them, is that the Lord will respond with what he calls four carpenters. And um, amazingly, we do have today four political entities that have united under the name Quartet. That is the, the legal, official, international name. The United States, the European Union, the United Nations, and Russia have come together to form this Quartet. They are now actively seeking to remove the land from Israel. Now, some 
Bible scholars in Israel's history, or in, I'm sorry, in the church's history, would uh, come out and say, well, no, that was nations in Israel's past. But of the four nations they would utilize to fulfill that prophecy, two of them did not scatter the Jews. Persia restored them, and Greece did not scatter them. So we know that the prophecy has not been fulfilled. We also know this. When we read the Scripture, it refers to the horns going forth to scatter. And it says horns in the plural several times. Right until the end, Sid, it says, lifted their horn, indicating the plural goes to singular, the four will act as one. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. Um, it's, it's not only that we're seeing this four acting as one that says, yes, this prophecy is fulfilling right now. But when you look at the warning associated within that prophecy, it talks about how the Lord showed Zechariah four carpenters. And then he asked, what are these coming to do? And, and he flat out says that uh, they're coming to fray the horns of the Gentiles who have come to scatter the land. And so that takes us to events that are unfolding today. So, so what do you define carpenters as? You know, I've given that a lot of thought. Uh, I think huge, powerful angels, I would have to say, sophisticated angels capable of, of doing quite a bit to the nations that are trying to scatter Israel. And we see, actually, if we go back, the very first day that this quartet, this group of four political entities, or four horns, met was April 30th, 2003. Coincidentally, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, on that particular day, the worst weather in U.S. history began. On that day, it was a tornado rampage the like of which uh, had never been recorded. I think it was 562 of them over the course of about three weeks. When that ended, then a heat wave was launched in Europe, which was the worst in 250 years. Tragically, 52,000 people lost their lives. First, worst one in 250 years. So, so let me get this straight. Uh, when this quartet, which uh, you believe very clearly is uh, the, the, uh, the four from the book of Zechariah, when this quartet came together, this horrific thing happened. When you saw the, co- the uh, in quotes, as you put it, the coincidence of the timing, what did this mean to you? It meant that that's further confirmation this prophecy is actually unfolding. And this is a prophecy given 2,500 years ago, unfolding today. Okay. Take, t- give me some more understanding of the four horns and the four angels or carpenters. Well, one thing is this. Replacement theology tried to put the four horns in Israel's past because they had to, because they didn't think Israel was coming back in the land. But there's, there's an, another incident that took place. You know, we're told in the prophecy that the carpenters will go forth to fray these four horns. Okay, here's another event of this fraying, this biblical fraying. Uh, when you say fray, you mean destroy. Oh, yeah, do great damage. Okay, fray sounds too mild to me, it but go does, ahead. Doesn't it? Until you look up the definition, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty uh, out there. Okay. Okay. 
you look at the global financial collapse that happened in 2008, and most of us look at that and say, okay, well, it happened in 2008. But in point of fact, you can go back and you can find out the exact day it began, and this is how. The entire global financial collapse centered on banking liquidity or the lack thereof. It's measured by the premium banks pay to one another. You can go back to July 26, 2007, and you can see the beginning of the march of that premium that used to, used to be less than seven one-hundredths of 1%, one marched all the way up to 364 one-hundredths of 1%. One to put that in English, it's a Sigma 6.2 event which should take place once out of every 2.5 million days, and that happened, began on July 26, 2007, where you say, well, okay, what's so special about that? That marks the week that the quartet launched their next effort to remove the promised land. Tony Blair, the, uh, the, the head of the quartet at that time, went to the Middle East to begin gathering uh, the group of nations that would oppose Israel to remove the land on that very same week. So you're seeing every time this quartet does something notable, there's a judgment. The, the key is this. When you look at all of these events that transpire, and this is, this is something I know we're going to get into in a little bit, uh, we have a, a a I have a political catastrophe matrix that I talk about. And what is notable is there has to be some advance against the promised land. Uh, so if the quartet meets and it's a meaningless meeting, nothing seems to happen. But when it is a meeting of great substance, like the, being the first in an effort is big, or the, the one that uh, the meeting that ended up taking place uh, based off of the July 23, 2007 visit of Tony Blair to the Middle East, was the Annapolis Peace Conference, where it was a, it was a promised land bazaar, where everybody wanted to get their hands on Israel's land. And, and what happened at that meeting? What consequence? They set up a framework that could be used in the future to remove the land. It's there. It's sitting there now because of that gathering. It was a significant uh, gathering. No, but what judgment occurred as a result? That is actually, that, that meeting took place in November of 2007. But the beginning move, the first week uh, that Tony Blair went to the Middle East to begin the effort toward that Annapolis conference was the week of July 23, 2007, which is the exact week that the global financial system began to, uh, to fray basically. When you see all of these things, how certain are you that your prognosis based on Scripture that you see, see is about ready to happen, how certain are you that it's correct? I am very certain because I believe the Lord is showing us so that we can be watchful and sober. We're, we're told— Oops, we're out of time again. You know, you sound like a fairly cautious guy, Dave, but you took a leap of faith and you, and you made some predictions based on what you've seen happen in the past in reference to coming against Israel. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's amazing 
what you said there that came true. Uh, tell us another one. Yeah, what it is is that uh, we look for a major policy shift against Israel. That seems to trigger some type of historical calamity. And uh, we actually received that. That was what was indicated in the middle part of 2009 as Obama's administration was just getting going. And it was pointed out that if this happens, then, then this is what we would need to look for. And it happened on May 19, 2011. The president came out in a speech that was described as being very strongly pro-Palestinian to the point where he was asking Israel to go back to the pre-1967 borders, which by previous presidents was viewed as something that you would never ask Israel to do. He also indicated that he didn't want the Palestinian state that would be created uh, to be severed in two. He wanted it to be one continuous landmass. Well, the problem with that is that Israel gets in the way. So it means that Israel would have to be bisected. It was, it was such a, a strong shift against Israel in U.S. policy uh, that the Washington Post indicated as such. Democratic Senate leader Harry Reid did. Alan Dershowitz, a Harvard law professor, uh, professor did as well. And, and the, these are the closest Obama team you can speak of. All came against Obama saying that. Yes. So it qualified as what we would be looking for, said that should produce the, the, uh, a historically significant calamity associated with it. So let's see what happened here. We know the speech came out on May 19th. However, we know that that isn't the day he came up with the policy. Some weeks earlier, the administration obviously came up with the policy, and the May 19th speech was the result of it. So we can actually track down when he came up with that policy by looking at the actions of his Middle East point man, George Mitchell. Mitchell tendered his resignation letter, which was announced about one week before the president's big speech. It was highly unusual because to have your point man for the Middle East resign, you know, just prior to you giving a big speech is not something the administration could have been uh, too happy about. But Mitchell resigned just the same before the president's big speech, indicating in strong diplomatic terms I disagree strongly with this policy. But the New York Times reported that his letter was written on April 6th. Well, since we know how strongly he felt against the policy, we can infer that once the policy was decided upon, it probably was not more than a day or two that he tendered his letter of resignation. That brings us to April 4th or 5th. And what happened, what began happening on April 4th, 2011, is what is described as the worst tornado rampage in world history, not just U.S., world history, as well as flooding only comparable to 1927. So uh, tragically, it included the monster tornado that struck Joplin, Missouri. I, I was in that area of uh, the country uh, back in July. And uh, it, it's just incredible uh, what that tornado produced there. In addition, you had uh, it was now the record was broken by hundreds of tornadoes. 
I believe it was 892 tornadoes were accounted for over a period uh, of uh, about one month. And it all began on April 4th, which coincidentally appears to mark the best date we can narrow down to when the new policy was uh, started. You can also look back uh, and, and see in the state of Alabama that they were just ravaged by tornadoes. Uh, I know in Louisiana, the flooding that we experienced uh, caused what we call the spillway to be opened, and which caused people to have to move out of the spillway to let the water go in there. It, it just impacted a lot of people. You know, with the uh, current anti-Israel administration in, I, I can understand why the majority of the Jewish people voted for President Obama the first election. But it defies reason why the majority of the Jewish people in the United States of America voted for him a second time uh, when he is so anti-Israel and the administration is so anti-Israel. It kind of reminds me to a parallel of Adolf Hitler when the Jewish people were blinded to even him until he started doing things. Uh, do you see that? I think it's a state of disbelief. There's a lack of the ability to wrap one's mind around certain concepts because they're too unpleasant. Um, and I think in this case, you know, I'm not sure that um, Jewish people realize just how dangerous the situation is growing for Israel uh, by the day in the Middle East. Uh, you know, you've got regimes being toppled. For example, the Muslim Brotherhood took over in Egypt. Good gosh. Really? I mean, how dangerous is that? Uh, yeah, but they they keep having visits to the White House. They are friends of the administration. It blows you away because they, they will never be a friend of the United States or Israel. Uh, for those that don't really know the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, tell me what their objective is. Their objective is the destruction of Israel, complete eradication of the Jews from uh, the land, and uh, to uh, take back Al-Quds, they call it, which is uh, Jerusalem. The, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, who is so cozied up with the Obama administration, was in the United States uh, worshiping, and they were able to, to read his lips as he came in agreement uh, with the cleric who was speaking about uh, desiring the annihilation of the Jews in Israel. So, you know, there's no doubt that, that they're not a friend of the United States, they're not a friend of Israel, and we shouldn't be cozying up to them. But for some strange reason, Sid, uh, the United States is under President Obama. Well, tell me about uh, some of the next things you see happening based on having reported what would happen in your first book, and it did happen, uh, what are some of the new things you see happening? You know, I talk about the, what I call, three common denominators to all of these historically significant disasters. When we look at each one of them, they do, in fact, have three common denominators. If, if you look at the first effort, which was the Madrid peace process in 1991, the whole concept behind that was, if we can just get Israel to give away land, it's going to result in peace. So the word peace is established in that. Uh, the round six 
of Madrid uh, produced a move toward uh, that ultimately led to the Oslo Peace Accord. The whole concept was peace. Every single effort is in the name of peace. And it's important here to distinguish between real peace and the facade of peace. So we have that one denominator uh, that's common to every one of these 13 uh, calamities that we've looked at, the word peace. The other most obvious uh, word associated with all of them is destruction. You know, the destruction that we're looking at is historical in each and every one. We're not looking at any run-of-the-mill type of uh, calamities, but we're looking at historical. We're looking at the perfect storm. Wow, was that an odd storm when you study about it once in a hundred years? Uh, Hurricane Andrew, good gosh, I was in Florida at the time. They asked anyone going south to bring water to the poor people. The Great Flood in 19... uh, All of these occurred uh, within hours of coming against Israel. And these are some of the worst calamities to ever hit in the history of America. And you just hit the nail on the head for the third one. Not only do we have the word peace associated with all of these, but also, of course, the word destruction, which we just looked at. But you just said the third one. It was sudden destruction. It happened immediately. And usually it happened to the day that the effort was being launched. At worst, it began the week of it. I don't know if anyone's ever calculated the odds of this, but it's, it would have to be astronomical. Now, this is the thing. If the Lord wants believers to see a sign that will be missed by the world, in other words, those of us who are being watchful and sober concerning the times that we live in, then we seem to have three recurring themes since 1991 playing like a broken record. Peace then sudden destruction, peace, then sudden destruction, playing over and over again. So perhaps we need to take a look and step back and say, hey, there must be a message here. And in fact, when you consider that particular phrase, there is. If you go to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're told that when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Uh, and they shall not escape. Well, it's a pretty dire warning, but it's exactly representative of what we've been seeing. This quartet had its first meeting. Tell me what was the consequence, Dave Brennan. They did. Uh, On April 30th, 2003, the quartet met for the first time, and it was the brainchild of George W. Bush, He got together the United Nations, the European Union, and Russia with the United States, and they met for the first time in uh, 2003. It was a long-awaited meeting, and when they met, on the very day they met, what is described by weather experts at that time as the worst weather in U.S. history began. It included some 562 tornadoes over the course of just about three weeks, which is just incredible. Uh, also, over 1,500 hailstorms uh, were, were cited during that time. After that struck the United States, the European Union, or I should say Europe, 
on, because I would say the, the European Union was involved with the quartet, Europe began experiencing uh, the worst heat wave in over 250 years. And it was a devastating event. It involved some, <laughs> excuse me, uh, about 52,000 lives were lost. Uh, which is just incredible uh, and tragic. And, and, you know, we had something occur uh, in 2010 to Europe as well. In Great Britain, on April 14th, an organization referred to as the Advertising Standards Authority came together and uh, said that Israel could not run advertisement, tourism, tourism advertisement in Great Britain depicting the Western Wall, which is located in eastern Jerusalem, as part of Israel, saying that, no, it's really the Palestinians, essentially. Well, that's an assault on Israeli sovereignty of the land promised to them by God. As coincidence would have it, a volcano on Iceland, uh, the name of which I will not try to pronounce, it looks like a monkey hit a typewriter and, and stayed on it for a while, it blew its top, something it hadn't done in, in almost 100 years. And uh, the result was that tourism traffic was shut down for Great Britain because of all the ash and smoke over the island, as well as uh, elements of, uh, of Europe as a whole. You know, over and over, these events are occurring. Uh, but the thing that disturbs me the most is the anti-Israel sentiment of the current administration. For instance, when Obama first took office and he made his first trip to the Middle East, uh, you point out he didn't go to Israel. When he made his second trip to the Middle East, as you pointed out, he didn't go to Israel. Uh, and then uh, the, uh, when Netanyahu came to visit him, he made him come in the back door. Why was that? You know, there is a strong bias against Israel within the administration, and uh, I'm not sure of the, the reasons that President Obama has for, for being that way, but I'll tell you this. One thing that, that I look at is how there almost a case can be made, a case can actually be made that uh, the Obama administration has derailed negotiations instead of being an honest broker between the parties. And this is why I say that. If you look at one of the first things that he did when he came into office was not what a, a honest broker would do, whereas you try to bridge the gap between the parties. The president's administration actually uh, injected a new condition for negotiations to begin between the Israelis and the Palestinians. That condition was a construction freeze in East Jerusalem. It was not the Palestinians asking for that. It was the U.S. administration under President Obama. Now, at the time, his supporters said, well, he just isn't sure what he's doing. That was a silly mistake. But it's not the only time he's done something like that. He actually jumped in and gave a speech on May 19, 2011, the one that we had talked about uh, in a previous uh, uh, session, where Netanyahu was coming to town to, to make a big offer for peace in the Middle East. And the president, instead of waiting to hear what Netanyahu had to say, came out with draconian terms for a peace settlement, draconian against Israel, on May 19th, 
the day before Netanyahu was to give his speech. And at the time, his big supporter, Alan Dershowitz, who's a Harvard law professor, said, the president's done it again. In other words, referring back to the first condition that he came up with, the freeze in East Jerusalem. I'm start- And I thought that first one was just incompetency. What, what was the second one? The second one was coming out with a, a proposal for peace in his May 19th speech that was so strongly anti-Israel that it killed any chance, Sid, whatsoever for negotiations, and negotiations never took place. It, it, it's a negotiator or an honest broker bringing a negotiating um, um, item that is going to kill negotiations. That's essentially what took place. So we see uh, that the administration is is really uh, sabotaging the peace efforts, being anti-Israel. I don't. I don't even get it. What's your What's your spin on this? Why? I think what is happening is this, uh, and I, I point this out in some real detail in three chapters in the, the Israel Omen too, is that you know you you can reasonably conclude that the administration has done everything it can to spike negotiations, to prevent negotiations from taking place. What that did is it effectively forced the issue into the United Nations. The United Nations just increased the status of the Palestinian cause within that body. I believe that is the goal. I believe the goal is to continue to kill any chance for negotiations very subtly but effectively and force it to the United Nations where he can say, well, I didn't do it, it's the United Nations. I I think that's what my gut tells me is that there will be granted a Palestinian state through the UN at some point. But I do see a clear effort to, to actually prevent negotiations. And I am not the only one. His supporters, I take Alan Dershowitz as, as one that indicated that because he said it's the second time the president did it after his May 19th speech. So it's not just critics of him, but his supporters see it. You know, we were discussing before we went on the air, Dave, of the supernatural things that had to occur for President Obama to win the election. Tell me a few. Yes. Well, Sid, he is the most amazingly lucky politician, if that's what it is, uh, ever. No, it's not luck. It's supernatural. So tell me what happened. Okay. You have a storm that interferes with the Republican convention. It uh, shortens it by 25%. It pushes the uh, keynote speaker, uh, Marco Rubio, the Hispanic from primetime. Romney really needed the Hispanic vote to win. Uh, it was a disaster for the Republicans. People were focused on the storm. It caused disarray. It, it really impacted the Republican effort. That's number one. Number two, I intensely followed the polls leading up to this election, and Romney had at least a two- to three-point lead going into Hurricane Sandy. Sandy strikes, an unusual storm, actually similar to the perfect storm that hit in 1991 that we were talking about. Uh, They compared it to that storm. It was so odd. It strikes days before the election, and you can watch the polls shift a minimum of 2%. 
That's the second uh, good fortune. The third, or supernatural, the third, Project Orca. Governor Romney's effort to get the vote out had a supercomputer. They pumped $40 million into it, and the result was on Election Day, it broke down. They reported having over 30,000 campaign workers ready to make phone calls that could not swing into action. There's articles out in in various publications. I don't have them right in front of me at the moment. Uh, But if you look up Project Orca, you'll get the gist of what I'm talking about. And so th- these diabolical supernatural events catapulted President Obama, because from what you're telling me, if that supercomputer program hadn't broken down, uh, then he would not have won, most likely. Is that what you're saying? I believe had the supercomputer, had Project Orca not broken down, and there hadn't been a, a Hurricane Sandy strike at that time, you know, once in a hundred year, perfect storm type, crazy storm. I think Romney would have won. I think it took both of those, in my own opinion, of, of studying it. But that that's only uh, recent good fortune or supernatural intervention that has uh, helped uh, this particular president. You go back to his Senate race. He was a U.S. a state senator running for the U.S. Senate that had no shot. He was running in a Democratic primary against a guy that was going to wipe him clean, who was very well-funded and well-established, and that guy resigned. He pulled out from some scandal. The Republican was equally powerful. He pulled out from some scandal. It was then just Obama, essentially, waltzing in to that position. Then, if you look at the history of the individuals who have been who have been keynote speakers at Democratic conventions, no one as a state senator since the early 80s has been picked to be a keynote speaker, but they picked Barack Obama when he was a candidate for the U.S. Senate. That speech propels him to to win the primary. Uh, uh, how, how about defeating Hillary and all of her machinery? That should have never happened. This is the most amazing supernatural things that have catapulted him. Let's talk on tomorrow's broadcast of what you see happening in the future. Explain who the quartet is that uh, the Book of Zechariah is speaking of. Yeah, the the quartet is the United States, uh, the European Union, United Nations, and Russia. And uh, they have united under the term quartet. That's an official international organization now, the quartet. They have a leader, and uh, they have a goal. Their goal is to scatter the land of Israel in the name of peace. What do you mean by scattered the land of Israel? Uh, take it away from Israel, the land that is specifically and biblically promised to the Jews to be restored, uh, is to be taken away and given to the Palestinians to have a homeland for themselves instead of living within the uh, borders of Israel. We know from the scriptures that uh, when you attempt to remove the land that God has given to the Jews, that it's a very bad idea. And and then we were talking on yesterday's broadcast about the diabolical supernatural that has catapulted an administration that is playing right into end-time prophecy. For instance, our current administration is buddy-buddy with the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, They go to the White House, uh, but most people really— 
don't understand the Muslim Brotherhood. As a matter of fact, uh, they're positioned as peace-loving, and, and they're winning all of these elections in, in these uh, countries that are dumping their dictator and having democracy. The Muslim Brotherhood is winning and controlling them. Tell me what you found out about the Muslim Brotherhood. You've got to go back to 1928, Sid. That's when uh, it all began. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was founded by a schoolteacher. And um, during the 1930s, he, he built it into a real political force within Egypt. And they have as their goal the creation of an Islamic caliphate or, or a unity of all Islamic people into one uh, nation, let's say, under the Sharia law. Sharia law is a brutal law, and you know it's where men can kill their daughters for perceived uh, dishonor and, and that sort of thing. But to show just how radical that they are, even back in the 1930s. Now remember, this is before the Jews were back in their land, so uh, there was no uh, beef, so to say, uh, between the uh, Muslims and the Jews at that time uh, in Palestine, but. The Muslim Brotherhood sided with the Nazis against the British. They even went as far as to translate Mein Kampf, Hitler's uh, insane rantings, into Arabic so Muslims could uh, read his, his words. Um, they've got a new tactic, though. You know, they're not stupid. Um, they've been very patient. They've waited for years uh, for a president like President Obama and uh, Obama invited them to a speech he gave, his big speech in Cairo when he first took office, which was the beginning of the signal of a shift toward them because no president had done that previously. They present themselves as peaceful, and it's to deceive and bring others in so that those others become vulnerable. Uh, Obama's uh, uh, U.S. National uh, Director of National Intelligence, uh, James Clapper, stated that they're peaceful before a Senate committee, which uh, drew harsh responses from senators because they had no delusions, a number of those senators. They knew that the Muslim Brotherhood is not peaceful. It's a, it's a dangerous organization. There's probably no rooting them out now. It's a whole new reality for Israel on the Sinai border, and it's dangerous. What is Tell me the bottom line. What is their goal? Their goal is the destruction of Israel, the taking of Al-Quds, which is Jerusalem, they call it Al-Quds, as uh, the capital for a Muslim caliphate, uh, to where all Muslims will uh, be united. And uh, Israel does not fit into that plan. Uh, there, there is, they are myopic. They are one-sided in the destruction of Israel. There's no negotiation that can change that. There's nothing that can change that. What, what, do they want uh, their brand of Islam to control the world? Yes. Ultimately, they do. That is the plan of Islam, is to, to have the entire world uh, worship Mohammed and, uh, and, and come under uh, the auspices of Islam. Oh, okay. So, so we see this all orchestrated uh, from these... Uh, really obscure prophecies that people thought were already fulfilled, but as you pointed out, they could not be from Zechariah uh, about the quartet. What about uh, one of the members of the quartet is the United States? 
Uh, what do you see happening in the United States? You know, the United States has led the charge for removing the land. That's all been done under the guise of peace. And and everyone wants peace, and, and certainly God wants peace, but not a false peace. And all of what has been done will result in a false peace. For example, all of the progress that was made, and I'll put the progress in quotation marks, of removing the land and giving autonomy to the Palestinians has in no way stopped them from preaching within their, their uh, mosque the destruction of Israel and that all Jews are, are not even human, but are subhuman, which is eerily similar to what we heard, the, what was talked about in the 1930s uh, by the Nazi regime. So here's what looks like is coming at America. When you look at the 13 historically significant calamities that coincide with the efforts to remove the Promised Land, they portend something very bad is approaching if we push Israel into a peace treaty. And this is the thing that people should look for. If there is a peace treaty between Israel and the Palestinians, and everyone is pro- and the media is proclaiming this is peace, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. And it comes like a thief in the night. And we're told by Scripture that thieves in the night are, are you know, they, they don't tell you that they're coming. But in that same Scripture in First Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, it, it tells us the believers to be watchful and sober. So apparently what is going to happen, whatever it is that's going to happen, is going to be a big surprise uh, to people across the world because it'll come, it'll hit them like a thief does in the middle of the night. You don't know when a thief is coming. But yet those who are watchful and sober and look at the signs of these times and the warnings that have been coming out, those are the people that will not be surprised. So, Well, actually, you told me that the Lord used that scripture and actually spoke to you that that's the, that is the thing to look for. He did. He did indeed. Uh, I felt very strongly that uh, his spirit relayed to me that indeed, when they say peace, that there's going to be some really, really bad things that are going to unfold. And and I don't know if that means when the peace treaty is signed or if when in a peace treaty the Israelis remove themselves from the land and it's officially declared. If you go back to the Katrina uh, incident, it was only after Gaza, the removal of the Jews from Gaza, was completed on August 23, 2005. On that date is when Katrina was first identified. That might give us a hint as to the timing of, of the response to any peace treaty. And the magnitude uh, of the disaster that, that's going to occur. I mean, this really is a battle for God being able to be God and give the Jewish people the land he promised that they would have forever. And anyone that goes against what God says suffers the consequence. And here's another consideration, Sid. When we look at the historical nature of the calamities that have occurred, if they represent a warning, if they represent a warning, and, and they would be like a broken record warning of peace, then sudden destruction, then whatever event it is that they are alerting us to has to be a magnitude more significant 
than even these historically significant events, and and that's very disconcerting. I I love my country with all my heart, and uh, I hate to say these things. But I have to say this. Your revelation on end-time Bible prophecy, everyone's got to read. We're offering his two books, The Israel Omen, The Israel Omen 2, and a special CD that is this week's interview, but much more of what he sees occurring. Also included is a bookmark in which I've personalized Psalm 91. I want you to read this out loud every day day. My friends in Israel that are Jewish believers in the Messiah, their lives are being preserved because no weapon formed against them can prosper. I want the same for you. All available for a gift of $35. This is the Shabbat broadcast. I want to pray over you. The Lord is blessing you right now. The Lord is keeping you right now. The Lord is extending his favor around you right now. The Lord is giving you his gifts right now. The Lord is giving you his shalom, his completeness in your spirit, in your soul, and in your body right now in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach Tzikenu, Jesus the Messiah, our righteousness. To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming Mishpucha or Chalitzim, write to me, Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 704-943-6500. That's 704-943-6500. For a CD of this week's broadcast, send a donation to Sid Roth. That's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.